Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy, folks, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio, the podcast for people who play bluegrass music or anybody who wants to. That's a pretty small segment of the world population, but that's okay. This is for you folks. Here we are in episode 43. I'm always reminded of, I always think of Richard Petty when I think of the number 43. Anyway, this is being recorded on November the 6th of 2017, and I'm just mentioning that because I'm going to start the episode out with a little plug for a new product that my son and I have put together, and it is a little PDF booklet, 29 pages, called Christmas Songs for Mandolin. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, and it's been a little project on my mind for a long time, and we finished it, and it's up and live and I mentioned the date, November the 6th, just in case you're listening to this five or ten years from now, you'll wonder, why is he talking about Christmas in July? Because you might be in July. Anyway, this new project was a joint effort between me and my nine-year-old son, Jackson. And I mentioned in a previous episode that he's become a an absolute whiz-bang with this uh, music notation software called Sibelius. And so I kind of put him to work on this thing. And I said, you know, if you do the work of setting up all the standard notation, uh, we'll just go 50-50 on on whatever we make from peddling these books. Because he is saving up for a French horn. He is just um, consumed with the idea of getting a band started at his school. His school does not presently have a band program. And he wants them to get a band going, and he wants to play everything. He wants to play the drums and the French horn and the flute and you name it. He's really excited. He reminds me of the same sort of mindset that I had when I first discovered bluegrass. And, you know, I'm going to encourage him in any way that I can. Um, I don't care if he plays bluegrass or not. You know, I, he might surprise me. I might just walk in one day and he'll be sitting over there playing the banjo. I don't know. But I'm not going to force it on him. Right now, band music is the thing he's really into. And, by the way, on the show notes page for this episode, among a few other things that I'm going to put there, I'm going to put a little link where you can download one of his little creations. He's been wanting me to interview him and I've been trying to figure out how can I do this? Because, you know, this show is supposed to be about bluegrass and I probably ought to stick with that. But eventually I am going to interview him as a little bonus episode. But in this episode, if you want to hear one of his creations, he wrote this thing. Um, He's writing all kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, when I listened to it, I, I was like, are you sure you wrote this? Did you really write this? You know, I mean, I really grilled him on this and he did, he wrote this. So anyway, I've got a little MP3 file. Uh, it's just a, you know, when you set up all the notation in Sibelius, you can play it back and you can also export it as an audio file. So I took one of his, um, uh, classical creations, and I stuck it on the uh, on the show notes page just so you can hear some of what he's up to. Man, if I can ever steer him towards bluegrass. <laughs> anyway, back to the Christmas songs for Mandolin. He set up the standard notation treble clef, and then I looked at the stuff and tried to determine what would be the best key for mandolin players. And in some cases we transposed, you know, maybe he put it in in C and I moved it to the key of D, that, that sort of thing. And then we created the, the melody in mandolin tablature as well. We also included the chord letter indications and the lyrics to all these 12 famous Christmas tunes that you know from your childhood and you should continue to sing and carry 
forward into the future. But, you know, think about it. How many times people have, you know, learned, you know, they bought a new mandolin and they're learning boiling cabbage down in Cripple Creek. And then somebody says, hey, can you play Jingle Bells? And they can't. So this is a great way to play some tunes that the other people around the Christmas tree will recognize. So anyway, it's got standard notation, treble clef. You could play this on a trumpet or a flute or really any instrument. Or you could just sing it. It includes the lyrics, includes I, uh, the chords. I sort of monkeyed around with the chords a little bit because many of these songs... I could find 10 printed versions of, I had piano arrangements. I had just all kind of books and everybody seemed to interpret the chords differently. And then sometimes I felt like the chords were overcomplicated. So I went through each song and very carefully whittled the chords down to really the essential chords. So, you know, sometimes you would look at a, at like if you bought a, a book at a music store or something, there might be a chord for a different chord for every beat, you know, four different chords in one measure. And those can sound really good, but sometimes, you know, the real underlying chord structure might really just be one chord. So I did a little modification to the chords to make them a bit simpler, although I didn't leave out anything that I felt like really was a part of the song. So anyway, you got chord markings, and lyrics. It's really for mandolin players, but you could take this little book and just sing them or play them on any treble clef instrument. Anyway, that PDF book is now available. So that's enough of commercial for that. There is a link on the show notes page to the product. And I have to mention that Jackson and I have a 50-50 split deal on this thing. When you buy it, he gets half the money. And he is saving up for a French horn. With my half, I have to pay PayPal. I have to pay PayHip, who delivers the file to you. I have to pay the state and federal income tax on it. And I've got to pay the website hosting. I've got to blah, blah, blah. So Jackson's going to get the bulk of this. <laughs> anyway, pick up Christmas songs for Mandolin. You can download it today and start uh, getting ready for Christmas. Okay, so let's get into this episode. That is enough commercializing. <laughs> this episode is a continuation of a series that I have begun, and I've, I've interspersed it with some other things, but about playing in a band. You know, this one is continuing in that that theme, the, in episode 42, I talked about playing over other people's PA systems because that's where most people begin when they're performing. You're going to play on other people's PAs. It's also going to be true 30 years from now when you're booked at a big show. Maybe you're opening for so-and-so or you are the headliner. You're probably pay, playing over somebody else's PA. So it happens at the very beginning. It also happens at the end. But in the middle all those semi-pro and what I call the local working bands, a lot of them have their own PA system. And you may be one day or possibly today start thinking about having your own PA system because it makes your package, your band performance, a more complete package if you can play for you know, 150 people or 300 people or 500 people out in a field or whatever. Having that PA system uh, allows you to market your band a little better. But PAs are complicated, especially, I mean, they're complicated when you don't understand them. When you do understand them, they're still complicated, but you, you know, you can follow what's going on. You take somebody that knows nothing of a PA and they walk up and look around at that the rat maze of cords and cables and, you know, a hundred knobs on, a, on the, all this equipment, just knobs and lights and buttons, and it can be overwhelming, but I'm going to try to simplify that for you today. So I want to accomplish two things in this episode, and I'm going to blast through it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each individual item. What I want to accomplish in this episode is two things. I want to describe in plain language the entire signal chain from a voice or an instrument 
all the way through the system to the sound coming out of the speakers. So I'm going to talk about all the, all the little intermediate steps and gizmos and gadgets that that vibration that's coming out of your voice or your instrument, how it ultimately ends up at the speakers. And then I also want to do a quick, short course in microphones. And I, you know, depending upon how long this episode runs, I may or may not get to that. I hope to. Now, fear not, I am going to be going kind of fast here. And if this stuff is going in here, one ear and out the other, and you're not picking up on it, I am putting together a little PDF, a little free PDF, a page or two, that will be on the show notes page. So go to grasstalkradio.com, slide down to episode 43, click that. And I'm going to have uh, some of this shown graphically. In other words, I'm going to give you a little um, flow chart, you might say, that describes all these things. So you can listen to the episode now, but you may want to download that. And possibly when you get ready to start monkeying around with PA systems, listen to the episode again with that PDF in hand so that you can visualize it too. Now, those of you with more experience with PAs, um, most of this stuff you'll already know, and but it might uh, might be interesting anyway. So let's talk about the signal chain. It all begins with a voice or an instrument. Doesn't matter which. One of those two things is creating some vibrations, some sound vibrations. And the whole point of a PA system sound reinforcement is to take that great sound that you're already producing and make it larger, send it out to a larger group of people. Because if you're, if you've got a a great sound band and they're playing on a, let's say on a porch and somebody is a hundred yards away, they may not be able to hear every little nuance of the things that you're doing. But you put it through this signal chain, and the idea is at the end of that, what you're doing is going to come out a lot louder, more volume, so more people can hear you over a greater distance. So that's what we're trying to do here. It starts with your instrument or voice vibrating and creating sound. The next step are microphones. They're the initial phase of changing those physical vibrations into electrical signals. So there will be microphones positioned around. And episode 42, I think it was, playing on other people's PAs. I talked about that a little bit. There are also uh, pickups. And I'll talk a little bit about pickups. But there are microphones that pick up sound through the air. And pickups um, create the electrical signal from direct contact with the instrument. So you might have, in a typical bluegrass band, it's pretty often that a bass will be played through a pickup, although it could just as easily be played through a microphone. Okay, so the microphone is the first step in the chain. Then you go from the microphone to the microphone cable. You obviously have to have a cable to carry that electric, electronic signal or pulses of electricity. You need a cable. So that cable goes somewhere. Now, also at the microphone, you'll have things like the mic stand, something to hold the microphone in a, in a good position. You'll have windscreens, which are those little foam balls that are on the outside of the microphones. Normally, most microphones also have an internal windscreen that you don't see. You see that little metal screen on the outside, and inside that is usually a little foam ball. So there's windscreens, there are shock mounts, various ways of holding the microphones. So it goes from the microphone to the mic cable. Then, this is just sometimes at larger venues, that microphone cable It might only be 10 feet long. Well, it may have to go 50 feet 
to reach its way back to the rest of the equipment. So sometimes they'll be inserted a thing called the snake. Our band used to carry a hundred foot snake and I don't think we ever needed, there wasn't two or three times in our career that we needed to roll out the thing at to full length, but we carried it and eventually we cut it down and made it about 20 feet long. But here's what a snake is. A snake is just an extension cord for all those microphone cords. Let's say you got, you know, eight microphones on the stage. That's eight microphone cords. And if you got to go 30 feet with those, you need a bunch of long microphone cords. So what you can do instead is use this thing called a snake. And it'll have a box on one end where you can plug all the microphones into the box. And then this cable has just a slew of wires in it. Just one big fat cable. And you run it all the way to the other end. And at the other end, it has a whole bunch of dangly little connectors coming out of the cable. So it's just a long extension cord where you can, with one big massive cable, trans, you know, extend all of those microphone cables somewhere else. So that's the snake. Most people don't use those at the typical small gigs, but I just wanted to mention that it does exist. Snakes also usually have several channels that are used to go the opposite direction, to come from the mixer and back toward the stage. But anyway... Not going to get into snakes. So we got the microphone, then the mic cable, maybe a snake. Then that goes to the mixer. And the mixer's job is to take all of those microphone inputs, whether they're instrument or vocal or coming from a, from a pickup on an instrument, and combine them all together. Because you need to balance the volumes of all of those different microphones to try to recreate the sound that you are used to hearing acoustically. So it could be that, you know, the banjo and the banjo microphone that you have selected and how far away it is might be sending a little hotter signal than what you want. You know, somebody may sing a little softer than someone else. So the, the basic function of the mixer is to take all those microphone signals, line them up, and allow you to raise or lower the volume level of each one individually to create one combined sound that comes out. So it mixes all the individual microphones together to create one band sound. Okay. On that mixer, each individual microphone that comes to that mixer, there will be an input jack. So you plug microphone one into channel one, let's say. Vertically, if you look up and down that board, all those crazy knobs, it's just a bunch of duplication. Channel one has the same basic knobs as channel two and channel three and channel four and channel five and so on, all the way across the board. And just briefly, I'm going to race through what those are. As your signal comes from a microphone, goes through a cable, and ends up at the mixer, gets plugged into an input jack, there's usually a pre-amplifier there, a little thing called a preamp. Most mixers today will have a little knob there where you basically set or correct the level that's coming in. Some of your microphones may put out a louder signal, stronger signal, than others. I shouldn't say loud because it's not sound, it's electricity at that point. There'll be a little preamp where you can boost or cut the strength of that signal. And the, the idea is that you want to get a, a good solid signal coming from all of the inputs that's sort of equal, you know. So there's a little preamp in there. Um, older mixers a lot of times the preamp was just built into the circuitry and there was no control knob. It just, the microphone came, signal came in and it got boosted a little bit and all of them got boosted the same. But today there's usually a little knob there where you can control the input level. So that's the preamp. That's the first thing. And there'll be one of those typically on every microphone input of a typical mixer. 
The next thing you'll see are channel EQ knobs. It could be one single knob that just says bass treble. And you can adjust sort of the tone of what's going through there. Most mixers today, there'll be multiple knobs. There'll be a high frequency, a mid-range, or, or a high-level, mid-level, and bass. You know, that would be what you'd call a three-band EQ control. So if you want, you know, an instrument to sound a little brighter, you can turn the highs up a little bit. If it sounds muddy, you might pull the mids down a little bit. So it's a tone control. Every channel on your board will have some sort of channel EQ that only applies to that one microphone that's plugged into that channel. doesn't affect everything. It just affects that one thing. So that's, um, that's the next thing in the chain. Then, usually, most mixers, you'll see a couple of knobs marked AUX, A-U-X, short for auxiliary, and they are AUX sends. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's two. Two is sort of the standard you see on most mixers. What an AUX send is, it's a little knob that if you turn that up, you can take shortcut that little signal that's coming in that one microphone you could send it off somewhere else and it will return so just to give you an example you might have uh, a little echo effects box or something and you could send that signal over to it and send it back those aux sends are they're complicated to understand until you start plugging the wires in and out. But just know that they're there and they're a way to kind of shortcut the system. You can, you can take that one signal and send it over somewhere else and have it come back. Now where they're normally used and the way we typically use them, because bluegrass is not the kind of music that uses lots of special effects. What is normally done is that aux send one will send whatever's coming through that channel to its own amplifier. And that will then become the stage monitors. So basically, typically, one of those aux sends will be used for the monitor level for that microphone. So, and, and they will go out the aux send and never return. They just go, they leave the board and go to a separate amplifier that powers those speakers down there at your feet. So if you need a little more banjo in the, in the monitor, you might be using aux send one to send banjo sounds to that amplifier. So you turn up aux send one. So that's the way they're typically used. Aux sends can break off the individual things and send them somewhere else. They don't affect the main output unless there's a return. Anyway, that's getting too complicated. Just know they're there and they're typically used to drive the monitor system. Then you'll see a, a, a little knob that says LR, left, right. And that just divides the signal between the two main speakers, left side and right side. So you can, you can have the banjo... If you're running stereo, you can have the banjo coming out of the speaker over on one side and not coming out the other side. Now, my, after all these years, it is very rare. I don't think more than once or twice in 30 years have I ever used left-right stereo sound. I think it could be effective if you're playing um, in a quiet listening-type environment where every member of the audience can actually hear both speakers. Stereo, of course, is you take the music and you divide it into left and right, and what comes out of the left speaker is different than what comes out of the right. So you can, you can actually, it's called panning. You can take an individual signal coming through the mixer and say, well, I want it dead center. That means coming out of both speakers equally, or I want to lean it to the left and have this guy appear sonically to be coming out of the left speaker more than the right. So there are those left-right faders that's used a lot in recording to create stereo recordings. 
But in the real world of performance, most bands run in mono. That means you turn all the faders to the left, and then you take that left channel output and you send it to both speakers. So everybody in the room is hearing the same thing. And in noisier audiences or large outdoor venues, you know, if somebody's sitting way over to one side and you got the banjo coming out of a speaker way on the other side, he may not hear it that good. So it's always been my belief that mono is better to assure that what's coming out of every speaker, every main speaker, is the same mix. Now, I will admit you can create some interesting things with stereo sound, but you can also mess things up. So a lot of times those left-right faders that you'll find on every channel, I crank them all to one side. And then since I have the entire band all being piped over to the left side, when I get to the output of the mixer, I'm only taking the signal out from the left side. The right is doing nothing. That's typically how I would run sound at most gigs. So you got those left-right faders. They're really handy if you want to use your mixer for stereo recording. Then left-right becomes a lot more important. Okay, so you've moved through all those little knobs, and the next thing you'll see typically is a fader, uh, you know, a sliding lever that goes up and down. And that's the main output level for that particular channel. And then sometimes you'll have other little buttons and stuff on there. You may have a mute button. You may have a thing called pre-post. There'll be other little things included. I'm not going to go into those right now. But, you know, to to back up and restate that, essentially, you, you for one microphone, it gets plugged in. There's a little preamp. There's some EQ so you can monkey with the tone. There'll be aux sends so that if you want to send that channel off to a monitor amplifier, you can. There'll be a left-right fader, which you you may just put them dead center, or you may have them all the way to the left. And then there'll be a level control. That's it. And you'll duplicate that on the next microphone and the next microphone and the next microphone. There'll just be rows of the same thing going across there. Okay, so that mixer is now taking all those microphones and mixing them into a one-band sound, which in my case, again, I'm saying I'm going to mix them all to one channel and have it come out monophonic. So now, on the back of the mixer, there will be outputs. There is the main output. And there'll be a fader on the on the mixer for the main output level. So if I reach over and I move channel one's fader up and down, I'm only affecting that one microphone. But if I reach over and move the main output level up and down, I'm changing everybody together. And that's a lot handier. Some guy in the back says, hey, I can't hear you. Well, you just turn up the main a little bit or down. But if somebody says, I can't hear the banjo, you might reach over for the whatever channel the banjo's on and move him up or down. So it just gives you a master control. Sometimes it's called master. So you got that output, and there will be some jacks on the back that say main, left, main, right. If you're running mono and you faded everything only to the left side, you'll just come out of that left channel. Now, where does that go? What's coming out of that mixer? is still not a powerful enough electric current to drive big, massive speakers. It's been boosted somewhat, and it's been mixed and combined. But it does not have enough oomph, as they say, to drive speakers. So, from the output of the mixer, it still needs to go to an amplifier. So let's talk about the amplifiers that are typically in a system. Usually, most amplifiers, if you go by a PA amplifier, it'll usually be a stereo amplifier with a left and a right channel. They're two discrete separate amplifiers. So if you have, if you go by a 100 watt PA amplifier and it's a rack mount thing, there'll be a left knob on it and a right knob on it and a power switch. That's about it. And on the back, there'll be input jacks and output jacks. 
So you come from the mixer to the input jacks. You go from the output jacks to your speakers. And when you fire it up and you turn them on, you have two separate, completely separate amplifiers. So if you come out of the back of your mixer and you're only using the left channel, you only need one wire to come out of the back of the mixer and go in from the left out of the mixer to left in of the amplifier. You're only using half the amplifier and that's okay. And, and for a lot of smaller setups, this is really great because that main amplifier that you have, let's say it's a hundred watt amp. What you really have is a 50 watt amp on one side and another 50 watt amp. Well, you can use one side to drive your main speakers and you can use the other side to drive your monitor speakers. So it's, it's like two amps in one. Now, if you decide to run stereo and you put those left, right faders in different positions, you're going to use up both those channels. So you would have to have an, an additional amplifier to run your monitors. So typically you're going to have a main amp and that's going to be a higher powered amplifier. And then you're going to have a monitor amp, which can be significantly lower powered. The uh, system that I carried around for many, many years, and I still use it for Pony Express, I had a 200 watt main amplifier and a 75 watt monitor amp. And I only used the left side of each of those. Never, I don't use the right side. But the, the thing that's nice about having the two of them is that if one of them blows, you can plug into the other one. You know, it's like having a reserve at all times. And if, if the monitor amp failed to work, blew a fuse or something, I could use the main amplifier and use the left channel for the mains and the right channel for the monitors. So that's basically it. You come out of your mixer and you go to some bigger amplifiers that will push enough current to drive speakers. So coming out of the amplifiers, you then have speaker cables, heavier cables carrying a lot more current. They go to the speakers. So now you're at the speakers. You got your speakers up on stands or sitting on the floor. If they're your monitor speakers, the main speakers usually called the house speakers. The monitors might be called monitors or stage monitors or floor monitors. So those are coming from the amplifiers. There are additional possibilities. It can get really complicated. There can be subwoofers, you know, these ultra low frequency speakers that you can have crossover. See, if you look at a typical PA speaker, you'll see a big speaker that's for the mid range and bass. And then you'll see a thing called a tweeter and it looks like a horn. Most Typical speakers today, as the signal goes into them, you just got one cable and you plug it in the back of the speaker, you're sending all the frequencies to that box. Inside the speaker, it divides it out and it sends just the high frequency stuff to the tweeter and it sends the mid and lows to the main speaker. That normally happens in, inside the speaker on its own, so you don't typically have to worry about that. But Older systems and more complex systems, like you might run into at a huge festival, they will pipe those signals separately. And they'll use a thing called a crossover. Crossover just splits the highs and lows into different signal paths. Anyway, you don't have to worry too much about that. Just remember that your main speakers, that's what delivers the sound back to the air and ultimately to people's ears. So it's just my belief that a good set of mains is a good investment. If you've got good speakers, they can last for decades. And if you treat them right, there it's, it's, let's just put it this way. A good mandolin will sound good for years. A bad mandolin you're going to be replacing. I wouldn't skimp on speakers is all I'm saying. They take a lot of abuse because they get thrown around and hauled around and good quality speakers is a good thing. All this other gear we've talked about, you can have a microphone and it may die and you have to replace it. Cables come and go. A channel on your mixer may go out and you know, there's all sorts of stuff. 
But those speakers, they're your workhorses. Having good speakers and good amplifiers typically they'll last forever if you treat them right. Okay. There is one other thing. And if you look at the little PDF on, go to the show notes and download the little PDF that the uh, flow chart of this, there are things called effects and these are inserted between the mixer and those main amplifiers. And the, the one that is most common is the equalizer. And an equalizer is just a tone control for each channel of the output. And it'll be divided in, into a whole bunch of frequency bands. You might have a seven channel equalizer where everything from the lowest possible note to the highest possible note, they divided it into seven bands. You may have 10 bands. You may have... It, 21 bands and each one of these little sliding controls controls the volume of just that narrow frequency range. Now EQs, that equalizer unit is usually a stereo device. So it's two in one. You got two of them, just like your monitor amp and your main amp. It's a left and a right. So you can take one standard equalizer and use one side of it in mono to equalize the sound that comes out of your mains. You can use the other channel for your monitors. So one stereo equalizer can serve both systems. Now, what is the equalizer used for? Probably the number one thing it does is you've probably heard of feedback. I'm sure you've heard feedback. The equalizer uh, is your first tool to fight feedback. And, and just briefly, what is feedback? Feedback is when a sound comes out of a speaker and goes back into one of the microphones. And it goes through the whole trip again, down the cords, through the mixer, through the amps, and it comes back out the speaker again. Well, now you've stacked one layer on top of another. It comes out of the speaker even louder and it makes a return trip through the air, goes into the microphone again, and it begins to build upon itself and very rapidly just turns into a massive overload where sound coming out of the speakers, you don't want going back into the microphones or it just becomes this unending loop. So you try to break that. You don't want the sound going out of the speakers and returning, coming back into the microphones. If it does, you got feedback. The easiest way to create feedback, and you see this a lot of times when somebody comes up and says, hey, can uh, we want to make a few toasts. Can we borrow your microphone? And the first thing they do, of course, is grab the microphone out of the stand and start walking around like a DJ or something. And they'll step out. They're getting farther and farther forward, and they, they act like they can walk out in the audience with that microphone. As soon as they step in front of those speakers, instant feedback. Because by putting the microphones in front of the speakers, you're just asking for it. That's why the band always stands behind the speakers. Okay? And then you've got those floor monitors down there. They're pointed at you toward the backsides of the microphones. So... Be aware, I'm talking about the equalizer. When the band's up there playing, sound is coming out of the speakers and some of it is going to sneak back into the microphones and make a couple more trips and turn into feedback. Well, usually that's only happening in little narrow frequency bands. It might be your guitar player is, that thing is booming a little bit. And sometimes you can just decrease the volume of one little narrow frequency band and stop that feedback from happening. That's what EQs are usually used for. Attempting to control feedback by taking little slices out of the whole acoustic spectrum and controlling their level. Okay, there are other effects that can go in between the mixer and the amplifiers, things like compressors, limiters, reverbs, echoes, there's all sorts of stuff. And 
not going to get into those now. Um, but that's a whole lot of different stuff. And I think if, if nothing else that you gain from this is that you understand that having a little bit of understanding about PAs and what the real functions of these different things are can be very helpful before you go shopping. Because a lot of people don't know what they're doing. Nobody knows what they're doing when they start out fooling with this stuff. And you can walk into a music store and, you know, get sold a bill of goods. And they might be selling you a perfectly good PA system that you don't understand how to use. And later on, you may go, man, I wish we hadn't bought this thing. I sure wish we had this and this and this. And that brings me to this. A lot of PA systems, if you were to walk into a music store or go on Amazon and just type in PA, they'll sell these package deals where you get two speakers, four mic stands, four mics, four cords, and a powered mixer. Instant PA. And, and these things are, you can use these type of things, but what they do in a lot of these cases is they combine in one box the mixer and the main amplifiers. So all within one box, you got the whole thing minus your cables and microphones and speakers. What I described earlier when I went through the whole chain was separate discrete units. You got a mixer that does nothing but mix. You got amplifiers that do nothing but amplify. Those can all be packed into one box. Now I'm a believer in keeping them separate because you could buy a really good mixer and you could buy an amplifier. Maybe you buy yourself a hundred watt amplifier and you begin to play these gigs for 80 people. And then you need to go play a thing where they're going to have a thousand people outdoors. That at that point, without changing anything, you don't have to change your mics, your stands, your cables, your mixer, anything. You just need more power. So you could go possibly rent or buy a larger amp and speakers to handle that additional power. So it becomes modular. It's also good uh, if they're discrete separate pieces because sometimes you'll have something fail. And let's say my EQ, separate EQ, it's in the rack, fails, and it could just be a dirty connection. I don't know, but if it's not working, I can take it out of the chain and continue, albeit with no EQ, but it doesn't kill you dead in the water. But if all these things are combined in one box and something fails, you can't swap it out easily. You just, you just, you're stuck. And the whole thing will have to go back to be repaired. You know, if your monitor amp goes out in your all-in-one mixer amplifier rig, if your monitor amp goes out, well, you got to send it back and you're dead in the water. But if, if you've got separate discrete items all packed together in a little rack or something and your monitor amp dies, you can pull it out and replace just that. So I think you'll find that most, most people that have been in this a long time tend to gravitate towards the, you know, individual items all stacked together in a rack or my little rack is a, a little, a little box that, you know, all that stuff is mounted in and has casters on the bottom so I can wheel it in. It, I treat it like one thing, but everything in it can be pulled out and replaced or you know, let's say my monitor amp died. I could pull it out, send it off to get it fixed and use the main amp, one side of it for monitors and one for mains until I get it back. That kind of thing. So just think about there is, there are advantages to having it all in one box because it's a little simpler. You got fewer wires to interconnect all these different items. It's all internal to the box. So it is simpler, but down the road, it's not as flexible. So just consider that as you move along. And another thing that I'll mention, it's very popular right now to see powered speakers. You can have just a speaker sitting up there on a stand and your amplifier is over there in your box and you, 
you know, you come out of the mixer and you amplify it and then you send that down a wire to the speaker. That's the typical old school way of doing it. But the, the thing you're seeing so much today is that they'll put an amplifier inside the speaker. So what you do is you send a, your signal from the mixer to the speaker and you have to run power to the speaker. So now you have to have two cords. One is the signal and one is the power cord for the speaker. And so your amplifier is inside the speaker. And that seems like a great benefit. And there are some really good ones out there. We use that in Cedar Hill for the last five or six years that I was in that band. We had powered speakers. The thing that I didn't like about powered speakers was the running of power cords you know, 110 volt extension cords, you got to get them to the speakers. So you got, there's more power cords that have to be run around, you know, with the older system where the amps sitting over there in the rack, you had one cable that went to each speaker. When you go to powered speakers, you have, you still have to have that cable to get the signal to the speaker, but then you also have to run power to the speaker. Just be aware that powered speakers exist they're heavier too, typically. Although some of them are not as not too bad, but they're heavier because you're sticking the amplifier up on top of the stand too. So you got the weight of the speaker plus the weight of the amplifier. But they exist. Just know what they are. Uh, you know, powered speakers just means you don't need amplifiers over at your at your rack. You just send the the low level signal to the speaker, and then the speaker itself does the amplifying. Again, I'm not a big fan of them, even though there are great sounding powered speakers out there. But non-powered speakers are more flexible because you can change your amp. And you can add additional speakers and all that sort of thing. So anyway, just bear in mind that there is a thing they are around now, powered speakers. Okay, so hopefully this didn't blow everybody's mind, all this talk about... Um, <laughs> what all is involved in a PA. And you might be one of these people that says, well, I don't have any intention of ever playing over a PA system. Well, I think it, if you listen to this, you might come away. It still might benefit you because if you're around in the bluegrass world, even if you're a porch picker and you just go to jam sessions and you never play over a PA, just remember that all those semi-pro and pro bands that are out there, they are using PA systems. So a little understanding of it can help you appreciate what they're going through to bring their music to you. And it might help you understand why they charge cover charge at the door. Why, why you have to pay five bucks to get in. And when you go to a festival and you plunk down 75 bucks for a weekend ticket, you'll maybe understand where some of that money is going. <laughs> a lot of that money is going towards this equipment to make the sound bigger and make it sound good for the audience. So if you never play on a PA system and you never own one, just remember all this stuff I'm talking about costs money. It costs money to maintain, purchase and maintain. And you'll have a little more appreciation for where your money goes when you are supporting your local working bands. Okay. Onwards to the short course in microphones. And then I, I will be able to say I've been over the whole thing briefly. Because in, in, in a future episode, I'm going to talk about how to operate this stuff. I'm not going to tell you how to operate your, the particulars of your thing. You're going to have to get the manual out and practice with it and understand the features of what you operate. But I want to talk about the principles of operating a PA. And they're pretty simple once you have this basic understanding of the signal chain. So as quickly as I can, let me give you a short course in microphones because that is the first item in the signal chain. I'm not going to talk about every kind of microphone. What I'm going to talk about are the most common types of microphones that you encounter in the real world. They are, number one, dynamic microphones. And a typical dynamic microphone, if you go to Wikipedia and pull up Shure 
SM58 or SM57 by Sure. Those are the workhorse microphones. I think they came out in the mid-1960s. And they are known as dynamic mics. When you're shopping for microphones, you're typically almost every microphone you see will either be a dynamic mic or it will be a condenser mic. Well, the Shure SM58 and the SM57 are dynamic microphones. Here's how they basically work. Inside the microphone is a little diaphragm like an eardrum sound vibrations vibrate that little diaphragm connected to that diaphragm is a little very lightweight coil of wire and inside that coil of wire might be a magnet and as that diaphragm vibrates it moves the little coil and coming off of that coil, it will generate electric current. It is a tiny electric generator. Whenever the diaphragm wiggles, a little bit of electric current is created and sent down that wire. So they, they produce a fairly low level of stream of electrons coming out of them. But they, are, they self-generate power in tiny little amounts. That's why on that mixer there is that pre-amplifier. It takes that little, tiny, barely measurable electric signal and boosts it up to a level so that the mixer can do more with it. That's the way a dynamic mic works. Dynamic mics, you could play your whole life and play, play and sing all your instruments and all your singing over dynamic mics. They are almost indestructible. They're they're a lot more rugged. I don't want to say they're indestructible, but they're very rugged microphones. They do not require any external power source because they generate their own electricity. As sound hits them, they're producing electricity. The other type is the condenser mic. And a condenser mic, a typical condenser would be one like the AKG C1000S. A condenser mic works similarly, but kind of on a different electrical principle. It has a little uh, diaphragm inside there that is stimulated by sound and vibrates. Okay. However, there is no coil in there. It does not generate electricity. The vibrating surface inside a condenser mic is one half of two little plates conducting metallic plates that are separated by air and there's a wire going to each side of it and if you're into electronics and all that kind of stuff i was a ham radio operator still am a ham um you learn about what a, a condenser is or a capacitor sometimes these are called capacitor microphones I'm not going to try to explain that but i want you to know that when the distance between those two plates changes, the electrical characteristics of that circuit change. But no power is generated. So condenser microphones require external power. It could be supplied in the form of, a, of an internal battery inside the microphone. The AKG C1000S condenser mic uses a 9-volt battery. So if you unscrew the barrel of it, and you stick a 9-volt battery in there, that's all the power it needs. It supplies power to those two plates. And now it will vary that, that electrical current, and that variance is what is picked up by the mixer. Or if you have a condenser mic that requires power, all condenser mics require external power. If it's not coming from an internal battery, it will be delivered by the mixer through a thing called phantom power. Most mixers today have a switch on or off phantom on. When you flip that phantom on, it sends a low level electric current 
out through the microphone cables. So the condenser mic can get its power from the mic cable, which is coming from a little power supply inside your mixer. So if you use condenser mics, you want to make sure that you have a mixer that does have phantom power on board. That'll save you from having to fool with batteries. The batteries are good when you're operating over somebody's system who doesn't have phantom power. So just bear in mind that dynamic mics don't require batteries and don't require phantom power. Condenser mics do. A condenser mic must have an internal battery or be supplied with phantom power. So bear that in mind. Now what's different about the two? Why do condenser mics even exist? Dynamic mics are good. I mean, I, I played my mandolin for 15 years over a Shure SM57 and I sang over a Shure SM58. I still use microphones today that are basically clones of those designs. Condenser mics are known for being a little uh, more precise in their, you might say, more detailed. They can capture a, a more intricate sound wave than a typical dynamic mic can. At least that's what people say. I've heard some great sound of dynamic mics, and I've heard some not-so-good condensers. So just bear in mind that condensers, in the, in the usual world of running sound for bluegrass, here's the deal. Nine times out of ten, they'll put dynamic microphones on the singers, and they'll use condensers on the instruments. Condensers... Um, you, it, it's most people would say condenser mics can't handle super loud sounds as easily as a dynamic mic can. So sometimes you'll see a dynamic mic, you know, shoved in front of a snare drum or a banjo or something. But you know, f for every generalized statement you make, you know, there's something out there that you know disproves that. So, but just in general, you'll find that people like dynamic mics for vocals and they like condensers for instruments. Um, just remember that if you're using condensers, you got to supply them power either through batteries or phantom power. That's the two types of microphones. Uh, you could, you could run your band with nothing but dynamic mics for instruments and vocals, and you can sing into condenser mics. That's done all the time. Certainly done in recording studios. In fact, I I'm recording my voice right now for this podcast over a condenser mic. It's a, a Russian MK319 Octava made in Tula, wherever Tula is in, in Russia. I remember Tula is also where they had a factory where they made SKS rifles, big industrial town in Russia. Anyway, this is a good microphone. Um, that's the two types, dynamic and condenser. The main thing you need to remember is condensers require power. Then the third thing is uh, piezoelectric pickups. And I mention this because a lot of people have so-called pickups installed in their guitar or their mandolin. Those are the two most common instruments and the bass. Very common. I play my bass usually through a piezo pickup. What is a piezo pickup? It is a contact microphone. Rather than picking up sound waves from the air, it picks it up directly from the vibrations of the instrument. So it's literally stuck on the instrument. On guitars, oftentimes they're, they're a little thin strip placed underneath the saddle of the bridge. They can be glued inside an instrument. They can be installed inside the bridge of a mandolin. In the case of my bass, they're little flat plates that are held onto the bridge by clips. Piezo pickups are basically a crystal, a thin crystal, and certain types of materials, when they are squeezed or when pressure is applied to them, they produce electric current. That is the piezoelectric effect. Piezo, I think, is Greek. comes from an old Greek word that means to squeeze. So if you took a quartz crystal and you put it in a vise and you squeezed it, 
it would actually produce electric current. That's the essential um, method by which piezo pickups produce an electric current, which is sent to your mixer and so on. I just mention them because um, piezo pickups, if you, if, if let's say your bass player is using one, in almost every case, they require some additional amplification, a little preamp. When I play my bass, I have my own little foot pedal preamp that I go straight out of the pickup into the preamp, and then I send that boosted signal back to the board. Piezos put out very low levels, and they need boosting. Uh, a lot of these guitar systems, the amplifier is inside the instrument. And on lower-priced instruments, a lot of times there's a little battery box, you know, just mounted on the side of the guitar, and volume and tone controls and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes it's just inside there, and you have to take the strings off and reach inside to change the battery. But piezo pickups typically require a little preamp to boost them up. Okay, so you got dynamic mics, condenser mics, and piezo pickups. You know, other than bass, I don't like the sound of piezo pickups, except I did use one for many years playing in loud bars and stuff, because usually you have fewer feedback problems, but tonally, I'm sorry, they still haven't made one that sounds as good as a good condenser mic to my ears. Okay, last thing about microphones is a microphone has what is known as a pattern. Most microphones, like the SM58 Dynamic Mic, has a pattern called cardioid. And you'll see these drawings as you look through specification sheets and stuff on microphones. You'll see these circular-looking diagrams. The cardioid pattern is means heart-shaped. So basically, what these patterns describe is how sensitive to external sound is this microphone in various directions. So if I take a typical cardioid dynamic mic like the SM58 and I put it on a stand and I point it towards my face, there'll be a heart-shaped, um, well, you could say, if you represented how sensitive it is to sound in a graph, it would be kind of a heart shape. And what you'll see is that the back side of the microphone doesn't pick up as well as the front. So there's a null on the back side. That's where they get this cardioid. If you point the microphone straight ahead, it'll, let's say it'll pick up at a certain level to the sides. It'll pick up about the same, but to the back, it will pick up less. So this is something to remember. Most microphones, probably 95% of all microphones, are cardioid. There are other patterns. There's supercardioid. There's figure eight, omnidirectional, and so on. But just remember that for stage use, you, when I was talking about feedback, you don't want the sound from your monitor speakers and from your mains getting back into those microphones. So you make use of that cardioid pattern and you point the rejection side, which is typically, you know, the barrel of the microphone, you point that at the speakers, and it will reject those sounds better. So just bear in mind that there are different patterns. Do a little study on microphones, and you'll begin to understand that stuff. One of the things that I see a lot of people make mistakes with is they think that their instrument must be played directly into the front of the microphone, and that's not true at all. Because if you look at that cardioid pattern, you'll see that 90 degrees to the side picks up practically the same as the front. But it's the back. It's the barrel of the microphone. That's where it rejects sound. So if you're getting feedback, sometimes all you have to do is, let's say there's a floor monitor there, sending sound to the banjo player and he's playing into a cardioid microphone you can point that microphone the back of the microphone like a rifle barrel straight to the center of that speaker and it, you'll get maximum rejection of that monitor speaker 
Now, you know, whether he's playing into the side or the front or a little bit at an angle, you'll barely notice that from from that side. But just remember that these these patterns describe how that microphone rejects sound. And you can use that to your advantage in reducing feedback. Okay, that is enough on the short course in microphones. Just remember, dynamic mics don't require power. Condenser mics do. Piezo pickups typically need a little preamp. And then there are these things called patterns. And a little understanding of that can make your life easier when you're running sound. Don't forget to go to the show notes page and download the little PDF where I draw this stuff out as a little flow chart to help you understand it a little bit better. And uh, if at the time you're listening to this, Christmas is coming up, don't forget about the Christmas songs for Mandolin ebook, which you can download and help Jackson uh, save up the money for the French horn he is so dreaming of. Anyway, take care. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next podcast. 